you like that song? Jeez. Thanks, band, for bringing that to us. That's brand new from Charlie Hall, if you didn't know that. His newest album. I think you can get it out there in the lobby. And uh, we have a few privileges in store for us today. I told you a couple of months ago that we just hired our pastor of spiritual formation around here, a guy named Pastor Sam Summers. And, well, I'll be darned, he's here now. And so, Sam, would you come on up, please? And would you welcome Sam? And Sam comes to us from our grandmother church, Faith E, where he's been for 20, better than 25 years or so. And so when I was in eighth grade and my family moved from Northern California to Billings and we started attending Faith Evangelical Church, Sam was my pastor, my family's pastor, all the way back then. And then that evolved into a ministry colleague and partner and mentor. And I never, ever thought I'd get to see the day when Sam and I got to serve again together in the same ministry orb in the same little patch of the kingdom of God. But look what God did, and he delivered us one of his finest servants on the face of the earth, literally. So we are a blessed congregation to have Sam with us here, and you have lots and lots of treats in store. Uh, His wife, Connie, also comes with him. She didn't stay in Billings. She actually moved over. Yeah, that's always a good thing. Uh, But she's in Portland this weekend, and so you'll get to meet her a little later on. But Sam starts work on Tuesday, and so I wanted to introduce him to you before he formally starts work and such. And so uh, Sam has a few words he wants to say to us, and then I'm going to pray over him, and that'll be that. Well, sure good to be here. This is uh, this sparse crowd on Labor Day weekend here. This is great. This is good. <laughs> Move together. That's always a good sign. You betcha. Hey, you know, if I ever see another packing box, it'll be too soon. I think I've developed an allergy to cardboard even after this after this move. Uh, it's been a been quite a process. But um, you know, at, at, after 25 years at a church, I have to say that um, the um, the change for me has been. Uh, quite a dramatic one. And uh, when I thought about working with Brian and Derry and John and all the guys that are on staff here and the ladies, I thought, boy, you know, uh, if I was going to make a change, I want to make one that I'm really looking forward to. And this is certainly is one of those. And I'm just glad to be here with you. Uh, Pastor of spiritual, spiritual formation. You kind of go, what, what is that? You know, that's yet to be determined. No, I, I, uh, it's like that. Empty waste baskets and things like that. But... <laughs> But anyway, uh, you know, the Lord's been impressing on me uh, uh, the words that Jesus said when he said, uh, you know, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. And I I was thinking of what we were seeing there, that Jesus has brought sanity and clarity uh, to our lives. And, you know, folks, I know without a shadow of a doubt I would not be married today and I wouldn't have the great relationship I have with my four daughters and their their. Uh, husbands, if it wasn't for Christ. I know that because I know my heart. And I know Kelly and John are going to be talking about the heart today. And I thought thought about that. I thought, well, you know, I am so thankful to be doing something with my life that helps other people be set free and be uh, able to have clarity and purpose and direction in their life. So I hope that's what I can do here. I'm going to team up with a, with a great team here and uh, be a part of doing something eternal in people's lives but it's all about the Word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Yeah. It's not about Reader's Digest or the latest uh, uh, issue of Sports Illustrated, is it? It's about the truth that never changes. So I'm sure glad to be here, glad to be a part of your team. Thanks, Sam. Yeah. 
uh, out in the lobby after the service, there's a table that'll be set up, and uh, they'll be taking wagers there to see how long it takes for Sam to untuck his shirt. So you could check in out there. Yeah. I knew it was coming sooner or later. In fact, I thought about having it untucked in the back so I could just go like this. But Yes. In the New Testament of the Bible, they actually laid hands on people and prayed over them. And it would be a little awkward for all of you to do that. So I'm going to do that. And if you're comfortable extending a hand as a symbolic act of your hands being on Sam, you can go ahead and do that. Let's pray together over Sam. God in heaven, we are so grateful to you for delivering Sam and Connie to us. We're so grateful for all of the things, the amazing, miraculous things you've done in Sam and Connie's and their daughter's lives that brings them to this point in time for this purpose, God. We believe you created Sam to be with us in the year 2008 at Journey Church. And so we run headlong into that reality, into that truth, into that gift from you. And that's what Sam and Connie are. They're a gift from your hand to us as a church. I pray that your hedge of protection would be around them and their family. God, that their marriage would be stronger than ever, better than ever, God that their love for you would be more fervent. And God, out of that love for you would come an amazing ministry into the life of our church. That our hearts as a congregation would be ready to receive from you through Sam and through Connie all that you have in store for us. God, we want to be more like you. We want to be more pure. We want to be more holy. And thanks for using Sam in that way with us. We give him to you and we look forward to decades of fantastic fruitfulness through Sam into the life of Journey Church. We're yours. We love you. We give Sam and Connie to you. And the church said, Amen. Thanks, Sam, very much. Welcome. I asked John Oakland, our executive pastor, if he would preach this weekend, several months ago. And he, he's never preached before. Literally, this is John Oakland's very first sermon. Well, last night was his very first, so you're getting his second sermon. And he pulled in Kelly Freed, who attends our church with his wife, Sandy. And Kelly has been a college dean. He's been a school principal out in Portland. These days, he's a life coach, an executive coach, a business coach around. And so would you please welcome to the stage Kelly Freed and John Oakland to bring us the word today. morning. Isn't it great to have Brian back up here? He's been on a great rest, but it's always good to have our leader back, and I really appreciate having him back. So, uh, and it's really a privilege for me to be here, and I know it is for Kelly too, and it's a privilege for me to uh, serve as your executive pastor. I've been doing that for about a year and a half now, and uh, it's just been a blast, you guys, and so thank you for for that. Kelly and I are hoping that you guys are having a great Labor Day Eve. Um, I, I think that's a holiday. I, I'm sure you guys got the Labor Day Eve uh, turkey going. And the, uh, I know the gifts are probably wrapped. And uh, gather around and watch that Labor Day Eve parade this evening. So uh, I, I can't believe this crowd. It's, it's awesome. And this is exactly why we're going to uh, two services next Sunday. So great job. Great job. A while back... Hopkins asked Kelly and I, as he said, to prepare this message, and I knew I wanted to do something around fly fishing, and so I talked to Kelly about that, and and he had this cool idea about how we could incorporate a discussion about sin on that, and so what follows is is our attempt at combining those two things, 
And our hope is that we learn a little bit about fly fishing today and even more about God and what he has to say about the subject of sin. So let's stop and just pray about that a little bit. Would you with me, please? Give you some time to clear that Labor Day Eve thought. Father, thanks for your day. And would you would you help us with this subject today, Lord, the subject of sin? Would you would you teach us and guide us, form us, direct us, Lord? We love you and we cherish you, and we're going to give you this day. We pray all this in your Jesus name. And the church said, "Amen." Okay, are you guys passionate about anything? Think about that. Are are you really passionate about something in your lives? Here's my definition of passionate. When you're doing this something, you think of nothing else, right? You you just think of nothing else. And and how do I know? I wanted to share with, with you guys how I know I'm passionate about something, about fly fishing. And so... I wrote this play. It's actually a short story. And uh, I couldn't find anybody to act it, so I have to act out my play myself. <laughs> and so there's, there's only two characters, uh, and let me, set, let me set the scene. It's, it's my wife and me, and I think, you'll, I think you'll figure it out. I usually, I'm coming home. The scene is I'm coming home, and uh, I've spent all day on the river with a buddy. I've kissed her passionately already. And then the conversation starts. Hey, John, how was your day? It was great. How's your buddy Scott doing? Oh, oh, he's doing great. How's his wife doing? I'm I'm not sure. (laughs) Well, how are his kids? What are his kids up to? Yeah, 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 we we didn't talk about that. Well, did he say anything about did he say anything about his new job? Nope. <laughs> John, you just spent twelve hours with this guy. What, what in the world did you talk about? Well, we were fishing, right? We were fishing, and so you guys, I think that's my definition of passion. And <laughs> and on, on, on a on a serious note, I, I, think, I think some of us struggle with this passion versus is it an idol for us, right? And, and I, I just want to tell you that I think if, if we can, t- those things that are, a, a, you know, we're not sure if it's an idol or a passion, if we can incorporate God and our walk with Jesus Christ in with those, those idol passions, I think it'll work, it, work itself out. So just give that some thought. Okay. Fishing, match the hatch. Who's heard of the phrase matching the hatch? Anybody? The goal of the fly fisherman is to match what the fish are eating. Trout seem simple, but when it comes to their eating habits, they are not. One of the most intimidating things to a new fly fisherman is the question of, what fly should I use? What fly should I use? I want to show you a picture of my fly assortment that I've collected. All right, there it is. When, when, I, when, I help, when I got some help and I prepared for that shot, I said, 
I got to count these. I've never counted them. I've been collecting these for over 30 years, and uh, there's 1,101 flies up there. And if, if, uh, if the Oaklands have a house fire, those are coming out first, right? <laughs> I, all right. I, I told, I, I'll, I'll get my wife out, but she's got to carry some of those boxes. <laughs> all right. Why so many flies, right? Why would a person have so many flies? Well, because what fish eat depends on many, many things. Depends on water temperature, air temperature, time of year. Has it been windy? Is it sunny? Is it cloudy? Did we have a full moon? Are we fishing in the morning? Are we fishing in the evening? Are we fishing in deep water? Are we fishing in real shallow water? And that list, it goes on and on. Sometimes trout eat really big bugs, and sometimes they eat very small bugs. Let's show that next picture. That's, that's, that's Steph Edwards. That's Brandon's wife. We went fishing about three weeks ago. And uh, Brandon caught a much smaller fish, by the way. But um, lots of guys say that you, to catch a big fish like that, you have to use a big fly. Well, that fish was landed on a fly like this. Can you see it? Probably can't. That's my point. Big is not better. Big fish will feed on small flies. Okay, so back to the flies that I showed you a few minutes ago. Some of, the, some of those are fished on the surface. Some of those flies are fished on the surface of the water. Others are fished beneath the surface. In general, the ones fished on the surface of the water are called dry flies. And the ones used below the surface are referred to as nymphs. So you'll hear people say, hey, I'm going to go dry fly fishing tomorrow, or I'm going to go nymph fishing. And so that's what that means. On top is dry, below the surface is a nymph fish. Now, I do both styles a lot, but if I have a choice, I'd rather fish with a dry fly. Why? For me, it's more exciting. It takes more skill. See, you actually, in dry fly fishing, you actually get to see the fish coming up after the fly on the surface of the water. And you have to time your strike just perfectly. If you hit it too soon, you'll actually pull it away from him. If you hit it too late, he'll actually spit the fly out. And in reality, the same thing's happening when you're nymph fishing under the surface. You just, you just can't see it happen, okay? That's the difference between nymph and dry. Now get this. Experts claim that trout only feed on the surface, right? What I like to do the most, they only feed on the surface of the water about 10% of the time. So why is that? Why would, why would those fish only come up about 10% of the time? Well, some of it is bugs only hatch on the surface of the water a few times or, you know, 10% of the time of, the, of, the, of a hatch. But I think the most important thing is that what the fish are thinking. See, the fish don't like to come to the surface of the water because they don't feel safe up there, right? They're, they're not afraid of fishermen, but they're afraid of their natural predators. And predators like hawks and eagles, pelicans, nasty creatures like that. I've told people, I, I hate those kind of birds. I hate hawks and eagles. <laughs> Hopkins has a things for cats. I dislike pelicans. So, now that's why you'll see guys fishing. You'll, guys see, you'll see guys fishing under cut banks and overhanging trees and bushes because fish feel safe under there. They're hiding under there. They think they've got a roof over their head and a bird can't come down and swoop on them. Make sense? 
Okay, back to match the hatch. Remember that. What happens is these insects or bugs, they start collecting on the surface of the water. The trout, they start looking up. They don't want to go up because they naturally sense it's not safe. But they cannot help themselves. The bugs are just sitting there, and eventually the temptation is too great. They go up and they'll grab one. They'll get a little more comfortable. And they'll go up and they'll grab another one. And they'll grab another one. And pretty soon, literally, they're in a feeding frenzy. They've forgotten about any danger that might lurk up there. And if you figure out what bug they're eating, the right size, the right shape, and the right color, then you've matched the hatch. And you can catch a fish. Even you could catch a fish, Kelly. No. How many of you are headed back to school this week? All right. You've just had your first class, Fishing 101. I thought I'd take a poll. Uh, this is election year, so there's a lot of polls out. How many of you are avid fishermen? Would you raise your hand? John needs to see what his competition is. Avid fishermen. See, my wife told me that that would be the problem. Is I told her what we were talking about. We were talking about fly fishing and matching the hatch. And she says, do you think everybody in Bozeman are fishermen? Are fishers? Fisher persons? And I go, well, yeah, I'm sure. She said, no, you've got to throw something else in there. So we're going to talk about fashion today. So we're going to talk about match the hatch and dress for success. Uh, and this is all because Sandy says there's no way you're going to keep an audience on fly fishing for 35 minutes. So we're going to talk at the end of the service about this metaphor that the Bible talks about dress for success. I had my first experience with matching the hatch, and I'm not a very accomplished fisherman, and so my nephew, who is a lot like John, decides he's going to take me over to the Boulder River. And so my idea of a good fishing day is take all the flies in my collection, which are eight, and uh, take a bag of sunflower seeds and a book. And if fishing's no good, I'm still going to have a good day. So I said, Bob, you just go do your thing. And he came back an hour later. I'd beaten the water like crazy. I was already into the sunflower seeds. He said, how'd you do? And I said, they're not biting. He goes, what are you talking about? And I said, I threw everything in my collection at him. I looked at the best bugs, the things that look good to me, and not a one of them. And I said, how'd you do? And he said, I landed 15. I'm going, no way. He said, well, did you match the hatch? And I go, what are you talking about? And so he went to his vest and he pulled out a screen just like this. And he said, well, haven't you ever done this before? And he took this screen and he stuck it down in the river and he held it there for a little while. And all of a sudden, bugs started to collect with some of the other debris and he picked it up and he says, I know exactly what they're feeding on. I'm going, whoa, that's amazing. No wonder you're successful. And then it dawned on me. I'd been studying James chapter 1 at that time. And I'm going, you know what? Satan is like the master fisherman. He matches our hatch all the time. He knows exactly what lures us. When I told this to John, he said, I thought we were going to talk about fishing, not about sin. But the reality is James 1 verse 13, 14 says, Temptation comes. Where does it come from? from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. And so it's not something external to us. It's something that draws us in. Just like a fish is going to find out what is good for the day, Satan knows exactly what your hatch is. It's kind of sad, isn't it? 
But the good news is, is that the Bible offers some solutions, which we'll talk about later on. You know, John was just talking about fishing below the surface about 80% or 90% of the time. And I realized that the analogy works there as well. Most of our sin happens below the surface, doesn't it? When you think about it, most of the stuff is between our ears, in our heart, and in what we look at. And so Satan is figuring out exactly what draws you away, what entices you. And it's sometimes we sin on the surface, which is visible to everybody. And at that time, you may gossip about somebody, or you might say something about somebody's reputation, or you may tell a dirty story, and you go, oh, man, now everybody knows. And the interesting thing to me about this is that when we sin below the surface, we can still act pious on the outside, can't we? Because nobody knows except God and Satan and us. And that kind of brings us to the big idea today that we're going to talk about. You see it in your notes. It's also up here on the screen. And the first thing we're going to look at is the fact that God is never involved in your temptation to sin. Have you ever said, God, why are you letting this come to me? Why are you doing this? But we're going to find out from James that God never is involved in your temptation to sin. The second thing is Satan knows exactly what lures you, what draws you away, what tempts you. And so he matches your hatch daily. And the good news is the third point on the outline is that the Bible has instructions how to keep from getting hooked. So that's what we're going to look at today. So let's look at this idea that God is not involved in your temptation to sin. But He is involved, you'll see there, testing versus temptation. Those are two very distinct things. I think sometimes we convolute the idea of testing as actually temptations. You'll notice the fill in the blank. Testing produces endurance. Testing produces endurance. Look at James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. It says, when troubles, it doesn't say if troubles come your way, does it? Anybody have any question about whether or not troubles are going to come your way? When troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. I got to believe there isn't one of us that's going, oh, great, the toaster just broke. I can hardly wait to go get a new toaster. How many times have you saved for those kinds of things? We call him Murphy's Law in our house. You guys know Murphy? Does he ever visit you? Yeah, Murphy's Law basically is if anything can go wrong, it will. And I just think about those things are troubles in our lives, and we're always going to have them. You know, I've gotten into the line at the store, and there's a line in front of me, and just when it's your turn, they change, you know, checkers. Just when it's your turn, the person in front of you over-purchased and they got to take some stuff back and now they're counting their money in front of you. Or you just are going up to the canyon to a meeting like I was last Tuesday and the flag person comes out right in front of you. The whole line of cars. And you're going, oh, no. But the reality is troubles are a part of our life. Last March 1st, my heart stopped suddenly. I guess anytime your heart stops, it's suddenly, right? But I ended up in the hospital. And uh, while I was in the cardiology unit, my heart stopped for 11 seconds, 
and then eight seconds, and then four seconds. And I'm laying there, and all of a sudden I kind of open up my eyes, and these people are coming at me with these paddles. And I'm going, whoa, what are you doing? And they're saying, your heart stopped. And so I think of that as a trouble now. It would be so tempting to say, God, what are you doing? I'm a young man, relatively speaking. And so now I have a pacemaker, and I pace 100% of the time, which means for some reason my heart just quit functioning normally, and I have an electrical block. And so my top part is firing, and my bottom part isn't. And so I have to have an artificial way of living. And you know, probably if that would have happened 30 years ago, I would have been bitter. I would have been angry. I would have said, God, what are you doing? But the reality is, from James 1, 2, and 3, is, you know what? I look forward to every day. I get up, check the pacemaker, go, wow, that was a good day. I'm going to have a great day today. And I just want to challenge you as you think of this testing thing, because some of you can allow those testing things to become temptation and settling in where Satan can match your hatch just like that. So think about testing. The second point is that Satan... Satan knows exactly what it is that lures you away. So that second fill-in-the-blank is temptation produces sin. So testing produces endurance. Temptation produces sin. Some of you have read the book, The Shack. Have you read that? I have a quote that's also in your, your notes, but I think it's pretty powerful where Mac is back at this cabin where, at the shack where some terrible things happened to his family. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are there, and they're portrayed in different characters. And God is Papa in this passage. And look at it. Papa's saying to Mac, just because I work incredible good out of unspeakable tragedies doesn't mean that I orchestrate the tragedies. Don't ever assume that my using something means I caused it or that I need it to accomplish my purposes. That will only lead you to false notions about me. Grace doesn't depend on suffering to exist. But where there is suffering, you'll find grace in many facets and colors. So lock that into your mind that even though you have troubles, even tragedies in your life, God is saying, allow those to be troubles that produce endurance, not to produce sin through testing. Look at James 1.13. I kind of quoted it at the beginning, but... It says, and remember when, not if you're going to be tempted. Remember in verse 2, it said, when troubles come. This says, when you're being tempted, don't say, God is tempting me. God never is tempted to do wrong. And He never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and draw us away. And so that's where the, the analogy that Satan knows. Look at that principle on your sheet. It says, Satan knows what lures you to sin, and he puts it in front of you when you're most vulnerable. When you're most vulnerable. You know when I'm most vulnerable? Some people are into the temptation when they're hungry or they're down some circumstances. They're financially in difficulty, and so they're really tempted to sin. I found out that Satan tempts me when things are going the best. I get lulled to sleep that things are going well. And one of the things in John's analogy about the fish, why do they stay below the surface? Because it's safe. 
And sometimes when you're committing sin that nobody else knows about, nymph sinning, we call it, right? Mm -hmm. Below the surface. Sometimes because there's no consequences, we don't think anything of it. We get kind of callous. Well, nothing happened. God can't be displeased. He hasn't done anything to me. And that really leads you to some false theology. I was in my office last year as a college dean, and I had a pastor call me about 10 in the morning. He said, Kelly, can I come see you? And I said, yeah, are you okay? And he said, no, I'm not okay. I have an emergency. And I said, come on in. He came in. About 10 minutes later, he is actually calling me from the parking lot. And he came in, and he just slumped down. I said, what's wrong, man? He said, you won't believe it. Saturday night, I was online looking at the Greek words that I was going to use in my message. And he said, I was checking to make sure that I had the right roots. And all of a sudden, a lingerie pop-up came up to my screen. And he said, for the next four and a half hours, I was captivated by pornography. My wife and three kids were in bed. And for four and a half hours, I could not stop. And he says, you know what's really sad about that? is 15 years ago, I became clean and sober. I was an addict. I was in the first Gulf War. I was in the first group that went into Kuwait. And I kind of anesthetized myself with drugs and alcohol. But when I gave my life to Christ, I joined AA, and he pulled out a 15-year medallion out of his pocket. He said, for 15 years, I've had control over that temptation. And now, all of a sudden, I'm a pastor, and I'm into pornography, and I can't stop. And I had the opportunity to talk to him about Match the Hatch. And he realized that he now needed to put the energy that he put 15 years ago into his sobriety into the reality that Satan is constantly, once you think you get something under control, he's there to figure out what you're going to eat today. It's kind of a sad thing, isn't it? The cool thing is, though, the Bible gives us some great instructions about it. Look at 2 Corinthians. Let's not look at 2 Corinthians. Let me tell you the story. Paul had been given visions by God. Paul, if you read the first part of 2 Corinthians 12, he doesn't know if God actually physically took him to heaven, but he was in a trance and he saw some amazing things up in heaven. And he got down to earth then and he said, you know what? If anybody could boast, it could be me. Look at 2 Corinthians 12. He said, even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh. Look at this next phrase. A messenger from Satan. Not from God, but from Satan. He said, it came to me to torment me and to keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I said, Lord, I begged him to take it away. And each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now that I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me, that's why I take, look at this, I take pleasure in my weaknesses and insults. Have you ever taken, you know, um, uh, pleasure in an insult? He said, I take pleasure in my weakness, my insults, my hardships, my, even my persecutions and troubles, just like he said in verse 2 of James 1, that I suffer for Christ, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. Isn't that counterintuitive to what you've been told in the world? The world says, be strong. Hey, take care of number one. Nobody else is going to look out for you. 
And so all of the world is telling us to be strong. And then you come to this passage, and God is saying, no, I want you weak. I want you to be at the cutting edge of failure in your life so you look to me. It's called the strength of weakness. It's probably had the most profound impact on me in my entire life. God's saying, when you're weak and you rely on me, then you can be strong. John's going to share how Satan matches his hatch. Thanks, Kelly. I'd rather talk about fishing, but uh, let me share with you the way Satan does match my hatch. See, I I have a sin that I've battled for many years, and I like to say that I'm competitive, but when I really examine it, I'm a poor loser. Uh, I'm just flat a poor loser. So another one of my passions is basketball, not watching it, playing it. I love team sports. And that us against them thing, you know, that's, that's the greatest for me. And when the game starts and my adrenaline starts flowing, it's like, don't get in my way. This 163-pound body can be pretty intimidating. I know it doesn't. <laughs> hard to imagine. But, but really, here's where Satan creeps in, guys. If things don't go well, if I don't play well, if my team's not playing well, that adrenaline turns to anger and aggression. I start yelling at refs. I'll treat my teammates poorly. And the guys on the other team, I, I'm sure they think, you know, what, what is up with that guy? Now, you might say, okay, what's the big deal? You're just competitive. Well, the consequences of that sin, it, it, it's real. See, I'm sure there's guys from my past that I used to play against a lot that, that probably have a real difficult time looking at me as a godly guy. And now here I am, the executive pastor of a church. When I was a banker, I would actually worry that one of my opponents from the previous evening might walk into the bank and want to transact some business with me. So I carry that with me. I still do. I used to come home from a game, and I'd feel miserable. My wife would ask, what's wrong? So I'd share with how I acted that evening how I was feeling. And, you know, she, she'd do a great job. She'd say, John, you know, let, let's just, why don't you just repent that? And I would, but I got in this pattern of sin, repent, sin, repent, sin, repent. And it, and it's, it seemed a little cheesy to me, right? <laughs> so I had to ask my question, I had to ask this question of myself. Am I really repenting when I do that, or am I just confessing? There's a big difference. So I started to be a little more proactive. I started to prepare for battle, not against the guys on the court, but against Satan. I'd I'd pray before each game. I'd ask God to help me with the temptation, and it worked. I still battle it. I can feel it every time I start to compete, but I almost have it licked. So, guys, that's how Satan matches my hatch. He he finds out I'm going to play basketball, He selects his fly, he throws it at me, and if I'm not prepared, he catches me. You know, that takes a lot for somebody to admit publicly, you know, his visible sin. And I just want to challenge you with that because I'm thinking it's so easy for us to uh, take somebody else's inventory, right? John plays at noontime at the Ridge, and you can come by and see how he's doing. (laughs) 
But the reality is, is that it's easier to take somebody else's inventory. You ever said, what is wrong with them? Why do they act that way? A friend of mine is in AA, and he told me about step eight in the 12 steps. You know what step eight is? For those of you who are familiar, step eight is you don't take somebody else's inventory because you got your own issues. And that is so true because that's where Satan gets me. I get going along pretty good. And then all of a sudden, I can look at a John and say, what's wrong with him? And get all judgmental. And so I just want to challenge us today to extend grace. Look at your own inventory and don't worry about your other inventory. Sometimes we take inventory on our spouses and we let them know what they're doing wrong, don't we? And then they give it back and they take our inventory. And all of a sudden, Satan is just the happiest fisherman because he has matched our hatch. And so on the one hand, we can look at somebody's visual sin, but the reality is, is that we need to deal with our own stuff. And that takes us to the application points on today's message. You'll notice on those three application points down at the bottom is number one is sometimes you just need to acknowledge your temptation, your weakness. I've had clients as a marriage and family therapist for years I've had clients say, I can't say it out loud because the more I can keep it under the surface, the less I have to deal with it. But then they break and they come to the office. And I've always thought, you know what, just acknowledging and then finding somebody that will hold you accountable. John just set himself up today to be held accountable by a whole lot of people. I think that's pretty awesome. And the reality is we need to acknowledge our weakness. Look at point number two. I learned this about 12 years ago, and I try to pray 2 Corinthians 10.5 every day. God, today I want to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Because my sin happens in my brain mostly, in my eyes and in my thoughts. And so I try to prepare every day by saying, God, today I want to take every thought captive. And then the third thing is that you want to keep short accounts with God and yourself. Remember when we talked about the fact that you can sin under the surface and nothing happens, no consequence? So you get callous and numb to it, and you're saying, oh, it doesn't matter. And we need to keep short accounts with ourselves and with God. John was talking about confess, repent. Confession is the easiest part of this whole thing because confession, criminals confess, yeah, I did it. But repentance is, no, I not only did it, but I'm going to go the opposite direction. And just like John, now before he plays basketball, he has to have a time with God and prepare for that onslaught. And so repentance means i got to get a handle on this, and I'm going to go the opposite direction. So let's, after we've kind of closed up the match the hatch, let's talk about what it means to dress for success in fishing. Yeah, I, I don't think Sandy had this in mind with the fashion part of it, <laughs> Kelly, but... I don't think so. I'll let you deal with that. Okay, so why do we dress like this? I, I've got this Fish of the Month Club that I'm in, and there's two members now. <laughs> My wife and I, and the, the annual meeting's real short. It's, John, I don't want to be in it. And I'll say, you have to. And so, but she, the Fish of the Month Club is you have to catch a fish every month of the year on a fly rod. So, I've got Michelle out there, January, February, March, months like that. So she's got to get dressed up for that. And so I just want to quickly 
get you guys thinking about we have to take off this and put these things on to be successful for the trip. You have to have some good wading boots, felt soled so that you don't slip on the rocks. Uh, waders, obviously they'll keep you dry. These are Gore-Tex so that uh, they breathe and you don't perspire. Actually keep you uh, warm and dry. Uh, there's a wading belt here. They cinch that up, guys, so that in case you fall down, water doesn't actually go all the way into the wader. And then everyone's typically got a vest, and usually you've got weights in here and flies, bug repellent. Uh, you've got uh, a thing called gink in here, usually to keep your flies dry. Now, Michelle, she usually has jawbreakers, <laughs> lemon heads, lifesavers. I'll say, I'll say, Michelle, do you have some 3X tippet? And she'll say, no, but I have a Neckel wafer for you. <laughs> Got to have some polarized sunglasses so you can actually see down into the water and actually spot fish. And, uh, and then a good hat. Now, these hats, guys, this is just a respect thing. No NASCAR or, like, get-her-done hats. <laughs> we got to have a trout hat, okay? So if you can think about, if you can think about getting prepared for the day, it'll, uh, it'll help you be successful. And you can imagine what it takes to get into this gear. This isn't something that you just take off the flip-flops on the tank top and you jump into it. But the analogy, of course, is that it's the same way in the Christian life. Every day you've got to get up, you've got to put some. I hope you have to put something on. Um, and every night you've got to take stuff off. Well, the scriptural analogy, look at Ephesians 4. It talks about get rid of, in other words, take off those things that no longer you need, like bitterness and rage and anger and harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. He's saying get rid of those things. Look at Ephesians 5. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins don't have a place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes, these are not for you. So every day you've got to say, man, I've got to take this stuff off. Look at Colossians 3. It says that you need to put to death the members of your body that are causing sin. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality. As a college dean, in the last two years, I've done more counseling around pornography than I ever thought possible. Pornography and alcohol have been the two things that I've spent more time with collegians on in the last two years. And I know that guys say, but it's just a picture. And the reality is, Colossians 3 says, put that to death. Take it off. Don't have sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. Don't be greedy, wanting something that you can't have. You used to do these things when your life was still a part of the world, but now's the time to take off anger and rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. And don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your own sinful nature and its wicked deeds. You'll notice in your sheet the two columns that kind of compare to some passages. But he's saying you need to figure out what it is you've got to take off. I had a young man in my office when I was a school principal just not too long ago, actually, and he came as a new student in September, and I knew that he was coming to be the best athlete in the school. And the guys in my school around lunchtime got bored, and so they usually had pickup games 
kind of rat ball basketball and some touch, allegedly touch football games. You guys know what those are? Somebody always gets hurt. And uh, the first time that he got tripped, he came up and he punched a guy's lights out. So uh, he's in my office and we have a rule, you can't fight. And so we talk and he goes home for a few days. He comes back. I told him uh, it might be a good idea to take a couple weeks off the game. Two weeks later, the first game, he does the exact same thing. And when he's in my office, I happen to be visiting with him, trying to get a handle on it, and I saw a WWJD bracelet on his wrist. And I'm going, hey, man, what, what does that mean? He said, oh, that's what would Jesus do? And I'm going, where did you get that? He said, uh, well, our youth pastor's trying to get everybody to wear them. I said, well, you're wearing it. What does it mean? And he goes, well, I don't really know. And I said, well, if Jesus was playing in that touch football game and he got tripped, do you think he had punched somebody's lights out? He goes, oh, my God. And no. And the first time he had been wearing this bracelet for like a month, it went from what would Jesus do to like, oh, my goodness, I'm doing the thing that I shouldn't be doing. His mom and dad were a Christian. They knew I was a Christian principal. I called his mom and I said, do you mind if I share some scripture with your son? She said, oh, please feel free. Nobody else, you know, does it. And so I talked to him about match the hatch. I talked to him about getting rid of, in that column, rage, bitterness. You know, John's talking about that and I just saw it in his kid's life. The great news was the last time he had a problem was in October because every day when I'd see him in the hall, I'd say, hey, how you doing on the, on the list? And he had finally transitioned from the bracelet to the heart. So when you think about it this week, think about what needs to come off and then what needs to go on. So let's look quickly at that. It says in Ephesians 4.32, put on, get dressed this tomorrow morning with kindness and compassion, forgiveness, just as God has, through Christ, has forgiven you. Look at Colossians 3.10. It says, put on your new nature. Be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. And then in verse 12, it says, since God chose you to be the holy people He loves, you've got to clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy and kindness, humility and gentleness, and patience, and make allowances for each other's fault. Forgive anyone who offends you. So you notice those two columns of putting on. What would it be like if tomorrow morning you got up and said, you know what, I'm going to get rid of anger and I am going to put on kindness or compassion. And look at the application parts of, to this match the hatch message. Now we're talking about what do I need to do every day for the application of getting ready to go to, go to work. You've got to take off and put on daily. You need to identify what to get rid of. Hopefully you're sitting here today and you're going, yeah, I know exactly what I need to get rid of. You need to make that commitment. And then the third thing is you need to become accountable to another person that can help you look in the mirror. I can't, I've been married for 40 years and I can't go to a speaking engagement or a professional position place without my wife picking off something. She said, you're not going to wear that, are you? So she's my mirror. And then I have two daughters, and they do the exact same thing. I got up. My wife went for a walk this morning because she was here last night, and she didn't see how I was dressed. So I'm okay until I get home. But the reality is, maybe you need somebody to be your mirror. 
and I've given this assignment to many people that have come for counseling, is you need to take a look at that list of put off, take a three-by-five card or something, write it on there so it's visible, put it on your computer screen, put it on your cubicle at work, your dashboard, maybe the mirror at home, and say, today I'm going to put on compassion. It'd be kind of cool if you just took one of those each day, said, today God help me to be kind. Help me not to slander anybody. So that's what we talk about when we talk about dress for success. It's daily. I'd just invite you to put your things aside and bow your heads because we just want to kind of come to a time of commitment because maybe you realize Satan has been matching your hatch and he is relentless. So take a moment to look through your, your daily activities and say, I got to get rid of this. What do you need to put on? Maybe you need to look today at, oh man, I haven't done a very good job of getting dressed in the morning spiritually. And maybe all this sounds kind of weird to you because you're not even a follower of Christ, but you realize something's missing. And we want to give you an opportunity to commit your life to Christ, and then you can be on the new world of being able to attack Satan. And you might want to pray a prayer like this because you realize the void in your life. God, I realize that I am a sinner, that Satan has been getting me and I didn't even know it, and I need cleansing. I need you to forgive me. Would you please wash away my sin? Would you come into my life and change me? If you prayed that prayer, you enter into a new life with Christ. John and I are the only ones going to be looking, and we'd just like to know if any of you prayed a prayer about your temptation and you just want us to pray for you publicly and pray for you privately that you would have victory over this temptation, just raise your hand and we'll acknowledge you. Thank you. Back side. Thank you. Thank you. Just want to get victory. Thank you. Thank you here in the front. Just want to get victory over this stuff. You've kind of given up. Is there anybody that prayed to build a new relationship with Christ by asking him into your heart today? Anybody that says, man, i got to get on his team because I'm having failure. Anybody give your life to Christ? Father, this has been kind of a hard-hitting thing to talk about how Satan grips us. But Lord, thank you so much for your faithfulness. Thank you for those who raise their hands because they really want to get a, a grip on their temptation and their sin life. I just ask that your Holy Spirit will come alongside them. If one of us can come alongside them and encourage and pray, Lord, I just pray that that would happen. Thank you so much for the Word of God and how powerful it is. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.